Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Next order of business, if it pleases your highness, is the issue of continued vandalism of the castle's east wall. More graffiti? Well, what does it say this time? The details are uh, not important, your majesty, but suffice to say that the the work criticized certain royal policies as well as the... uh, the royal beard. The, ro- the royal beard. Well, I never. What, well, what are we doing to combat the problem? We solved the West Wall graffiti issue. Yes, my lord, but, but we're working to implement a constant guard presence, anti-vandalism spikes, and erratic paint scheme. It's... All right, well, it worked uh, before. It'll work this time. Case closed. Well, y- yes, my lord, but these solutions merely prevent the physical vandalism of a particular stretch of the wall at any given time. This is but a tame or a, b- a benign problem, you know? Uh, the overall issue of vandalism with the kingdom, it's a, it's a wicked problem. A wicked problem? Sorcery! Fetch the witch hunter general! No, 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 my lord. Not sorcery, not pervasiveness, complexity. We're talking about a public policy issue here, one with roots in economics, law, religion, and other areas. We can't simply pull up the weed because the roots are tangled throughout the soil. And indeed, treating one underlying cause is likely to disrupt other areas of royal interest, alienate supporters, or force us to face unflattering facts about... Ourselves. The royal beard is above reproach. Certainly, my lord, certainly. A finer beard has never been grown in God's creation. No question there. But what is in question is the very nature of the problem. Is it the mere physical act of vandalism? Is it the perception of the crown? Poverty? A lack of religion or education? This is a wicked problem. A wicked problem, you say? Yes, my lord. The wickedest. By the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Christian Sager. And as you can guess from our little audio play at the beginning (laughs) there, we are talking today about wicked problems. Yeah, this is a, a fascinating sort of overview topic um, that, uh, and I wasn't really familiar with this terminology. Um, yeah, I wasn't either. I actually stumbled across this a couple days ago. Uh, in particular, I was it, it, one of the resources that we're going to talk about today about Maine's uh, sort of political science approach to wicked problems popped up on my radar, and I read that, and I thought, wow, this is a really interesting way for us to sort of approach. Uh, science for the show, uh, and, and it's, it's a way that we don't usually talk about science, right? Like science podcasts usually have like such a reverence for the institution yeah. of science. Science is the great problem solver. It's yeah. the thing upon which we have built everything we hold dear. It is yeah. the, it, it, it is humanity's backbone in a way. In a lot of ways, science is, uh, treated in the same way as religion is by mm-hmm. some people, right? Like I know plenty of people who aren't religious, but they, turn to science as having the answers and, and, and it's definitive for them, right? Uh, and this is a really interesting way to approach that because it gets into the, the deeper complexities of using science as a way to solve the world's problems. Yeah, and it gets into, yeah, it, it, it basically deals with our inability or our, and certainly our difficulties with tackling complex problems, complex issues, um, 
throughout our, our culture. Yeah, exactly. So we're going to try to approach, you know, we're going to tell you what a wicked problem is, first of all, but the way that we're going to try to approach it here is sort of on this scale. There are macro wicked problems, which we're going to talk about, which are sort of like our large scale societal ills, I guess. And then we're going to talk about it in relation to science and the science community. And then we're going to bring it down to the human level and talk about it uh, you know, in the way that it's most applied in theory, which is in the workplace. Uh, and it's the, 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 the model of wicked problems is used, uh, basically as like a management technique. And you should, we should probably also take a moment to discuss, uh, its ties to, uh, Boston area dialect, right? Yeah. So, Bostonian okay. Dialect. This is worth mentioning and we played around with a little bit of the audio play. I'm from New England originally, uh, and, you know, I, most people probably don't notice that because I tried not to affect my accent on the air. Uh, but it, whenever the word wicked is thrown <laughs> into something, it, it might seep out a little bit here or there. So you might hear me uh, losing some R's here or there or changing the way I pronounce things <laughs> as we're going through. I'm going to try to try to hold it together. Well, I, I admit that when I was reading the material I would uh, about this and reading some of the, the papers, I would come to the, the, the phrase uh, wicked problems yeah. and I would often hear hear it spoken in my head in the voice of Julianne Moore's character on 30 Rock, which played the uh, <laughs> yeah. Bostonian yeah. divorcee. Yeah, she did a great job mm-hmm. with that. Yeah, it's uh, it's either Julianne Moore or like uh, um, Mark Wahlberg in The Departed, like oh, yeah. uh, doing his, his best Dorchester accent. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so... Wicked problem. What is it? You're probably wondering, what the heck are we talking about? We sort of introduced you to the basic idea throughout that little uh, play that we enacted. But here's the breakdown. Uh, A wicked problem is a social or cultural problem that's difficult to solve because of incomplete or contradictory knowledge. Uh, And usually the number of people that are involved in the interconnected nature of this problem is part of other problems, right? So they're all connected. uh, And often it's just written off as too cumbersome to be something to bother with. So this is going to seem familiar to all of you as especially uh, uh, citizens of the United States as we are in the middle of a crazy presidential cycle uh, and all of these things are coming up and are frequently being talked about with, you know, in my opinion, very little concrete answers because they're wicked problems, right? Yeah, I mean, it's basically a a standard aspect of politics. Nobody's getting up there and stumping and campaigning and saying, uh, on the, on the, the topic of poverty, this is a complex issue and we probably will not be able to solve it. We're going to throw our best minds at it, but every time we try and fix it, we're probably going to change the problem. Nobody's saying that. People are saying, I have a plan. I have, or I'm going to throw some really, uh, you know, classy, people at it and fix it. Uh, yeah. nobody yeah, nobody is is campaigning um on a platform of wicked problems. But I think like the more mature approach and probably for some candidates maybe once they're in office, the approach is hey, look, like these are problems that are so big, we will never solve them, right? Yeah. But we we can, if we can sort of understand them on a larger level like that and use that framework, then we can approach them in a different way that's healthier and maybe can make them better. Maybe not solve them, but make them better. So we're talking about poverty, sustainability, equality, health, wellness, racism, our failing education systems, terrorism, you name it. All that stuff falls under sort of the the rubric of wicked problems. Yeah, right? or multi-headed snake monsters in the swamp. Yeah, to go exactly. back to our Hydra episode. Because even the Hydra, <clears throat> the, of course, the idea being that you every time you chop off a head, two or more grow in its place. 
even uh, Hercules, mm-hmm. son of a god, uh, took on this task, and the best he could do was limit it to one undying head and just sort of hide that head under a rock, <laughs> which is perhaps a telling metaphor for yeah. uh, like even the best attempts to tackle a wicked problem. All you can really do is like clear cut. And bury, uh, and uh, yeah. and hope that people forget that this was a problem. I guess I think the Hydra metaphor is going to work well throughout this. As uh, you know, I'm not quite sure what order we're going to release these in, but yeah. So uh, we also talked this week about Hydras on a different episode, and Hydras are a great example for it because you you can't solve the Hydra problem, right? You at least the mythic one. Yeah. <laughs> um, you cut off one head, two more heads grow to replace it. Right. And so you, but, but I, th- I think maybe like the angle of wicked problems is knowing what the two heads are that are going to grow to replace it. Yeah. We're trying, yeah, trying to figure it out or certainly just being, being, uh, conscious of the fact that complex problems are complex. Yeah. <laughs> that, that the, that many of these issues that are are not going to be um, uh, easily tackled, and you're not going to be able to solve them with uh, a quick application of this policy or that policy. Uh, it's all you. It, it's that's why they are wicked. And not to mention, you know, the, the the theoretical applications within the workplace. You know, I'm assuming most of you out there listening have jobs or have had a job and know the frustrations that go along with that. And really, you can use the wicked problem model at that level, too. And I find uh, that it uh, gives like a little bit of a sense of freedom and relief when you think about it that way, uh, yeah. the frustration of uh, employment issues. Yeah, and I think it's also important to to remember that the wicked problem is in contrast to a tame or benign problem. The tame or benign problem is often just a simple uh, mathematical problem, you know, like. What's what's two plus two? Well, there's an answer to that, and it's four. Um, An engineering problem. What's the? How do we build this thing so that it doesn't collapse? There's an answer. It can be achieved. You have a. a, You you know what the mission is when you go in to try and solve it, Mm -hmm. and then you solve it. Um, We love questions like that, and it's easy to look to wicked problems and and try to solve them like that to want yeah. them to be solved like that i've uh, i've i've read you know that's one of the reasons that uh, the zombie um, motif is so popular the zombie apocalypse because in sense. the zombie apocalypse all problems become tame or benign mm. the zombie comes what do you do you shoot it in the head yeah, you right. cut its head off you kill it right those are relatively easy to solve problems and it makes the uh, relevance of the wicked problems go away right yeah like you know your better zombie uh, fiction has wicked problems in it as well. I feel sure. Like you look at like Walking Dead; they yeah. are attempting to 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 graft in wicked problems yeah. into the narrative. But at heart, at the very sort of video game or Dawn of the Dead level, it's all about tame, benign problems. I was talking to a friend about this yesterday as I was researching it and saying, "Like this is pretty fascinating stuff." You ever heard of this? And he hadn't, but he said. Uh, well, you know, and he, he maybe like kind of uh, broadened the scale of it, but he hadn't looked at the research. He said, well, life's a wicked problem, isn't it? And yeah. Like when you come down to it, the human body is a wicked problem because no matter what we do uh, to the human body, no matter how well we exercise, no matter what we eat that's healthy, something's always going to pop up that we can't control, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the self, the mind is a wicked problem. Uh, problem. Yeah. Uh, I, I think back to, you know, the old um, Sound of Music uh, track. How <laughs> yeah. do you solve a problem like Maria? Yeah. Uh, it's kind of a, a goofy reference point, but how do you how do you solve a problem like like Maria? How do you solve a problem like like the individual, like the yeah. self? Like that is a 
a complex uh, situation. There's not just a, you know an A plus B equals C equation going on there. Uh, we spend our whole lives trying to solve this unsolvable problem. Yeah, and so the interesting thing about the wicked problem, I guess, paradigm, or as uh, as uh, Slavoj Žižek says, paradigma, mm-hmm. uh, is is that you know that's the key to it is is learning to approach it that way and to say okay well that's an that's unsolvable right that's not a thing that can be fixed by its very nature but there's ways to mitigate it there's ways to approach it differently and and having that very position uh puts you in a better position i guess uh to approach it right so one major proposal that keeps coming up and and in fact uh if you google wicked problems one of the first things that comes up is a website for a book called wicked problems uh, that's by a design uh, educational facility in Austin, Texas. And uh, the whole book's available for free, actually. You can read it online on the web or you can buy it in print. Uh, but they basically say, look, like the way to approach this is through strategic design. And it's a combination of using empathy, abductive reasoning and rapid prototyping. Those are the ways that they sort of think about, you know, let's let's approach these, first of all, acknowledge that they're a wicked problem, but then you approach it afterwards. And so, you know, just as a reminder, because I had to remind myself, abductive reasoning is the it's the opposite of deductive logic, right? Where there's a premise that leads to a conclusion with a solution, right? There's right. two premises lead to a conclusion. Uh, instead, abductive is that the premise doesn't guarantee any solution. Uh, and in fact, you have to work from inference. And it's the most simple solution that's inferred that usually leads hmm. to some kind of uh, not a solution in this case, betterment, I guess. Well, that, that makes it. sense in terms of what we're talking about here, because one of the big problems is just even defining what the yeah. problem is. You know, you, you look at something like, like poverty. Yeah. Someone says, Hey, we have a problem. There's poverty. And you say, well, what is the problem? Is it that people are poor because of the job situation? Is right. it, is it more cultural? Uh, is it, does it have to do with our laws? Does it have to do with enforcement of said laws? Uh, you know, there, there's and so you try many to variables. solve one of those things, like try to solve the laws and maybe it makes another thing worse, right? Like, um, I'm trying to think of an example, but I keep coming back to like the interconnectedness of, uh, hunger and poverty. Yeah. And then like I saw a really good, uh, in one of the articles about wicked problems, it was a really good example of why poverty is such a wicked problem. Like we think of it like, Oh, we'll solve that. We've got this problem of poverty connected to people being hungry, but at the same time, we've got a problem of obesity in our society as mm-hmm. well. And how are those things connected? You know? Yeah. I've been thinking about this food thing a lot recently because I'm currently watching Michael Pollan's latest uh, documentary uh, series on, it's on Netflix and it mm-hmm. has to do with cooking and uh, where cooking comes from and then how the industrialization of food prepara- preparation has changed everything. Um, so you, you, you see the situation where like one side is trying to make things easier, trying to correct problems, but that ends up creating other problems yeah. as well. Yeah. See, so it's, it's actually really interesting how easily this can be applied. Uh, I, I go back to when I was in grad school, I had a professor who basically referred to stuff like this as like the model fits type analysis, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got this model and you put it on top of something and you're like, does it fit? Okay. But then you've got to go beyond that and sort of synthesize the information, you know, what, what you've learned from it and analyze and go further. Um, but let's start at the beginning. So yes. where, where'd this idea come from? Like, or the origin of wicked problems, right? Like it, it just didn't, it, well, we've certainly had them forever, but, right. but, uh, but in terms it, of thinking about them, exactly. Like yeah. Well, the, uh, origination of the term is generally uh, attributed to a pair of Berkeley professors in the 1970s. 
Horst W.J. Riddle, professor of the science of design at the University of California, Berkeley, and Melvin M. Weber, professor of city planning, Berkeley. Uh, and then occasionally you see people giving credit to philosopher and system scientist mm-hmm. C. West Churchman, largely for popularizing or modernizing it. But... Uh, but basically, it comes down to Riddle and Weber. Uh, in particular, uh, Riddle and Web, uh, Weber really dove into the topic in their 1973 paper, Dilemmas in a General Theory of Planning, published a, published in Policy Sciences. Yeah, I uh, for this episode, I went through and read that mm-hmm. piece. Yeah, me too. And uh, there were certainly many things that were relevant to the discussion we're going to have today, but it was so grounded in the uh, American politics mm-hmm. of the early 70s that there was a lot of stuff that was like, whoa, okay. But it was interesting, too, right, to be yeah. able to look back at well, it. Well, it, it kind of gets down to one of one of the things that we'll discuss that they point out about wicked problems is that every wicked problem is different yeah. to the point that if you're talking about wicked problems, like just in the shadow of a particular uh, area. If you're th- if you're talking about wicked problems generally, but really in the back of their mind you're thinking about a specific wicked problem, mm-hmm. that colors your your definition of what a wicked problem is. Now, I, I do want to read part of a, a a quote here from them where they really get into the whole idea of why why they choose the word wicked. Yeah. Uh, which yeah. you know tends to inspire not because they're from Boston of, of evil, yeah, or or <laughs> Bostonian uh, inflection. They said that they cho- they referred to the problems as wicked, quote, not because these properties are themselves ethically deplorable. We use the term wicked in a meaning akin to that of malignant in c- contrast to benign or vicious like a circle or tricky like a leprechaun. <laughs> um, that, I love that we're able to always bring back monsters into it. Yeah. They, and I they, guess a leprechaun they, is more of a fairy. It's a, it's a fairy folk with, <laughs> yeah. it's an unnatural creature. So I think it counts. Um, and they brought it up, not us. Um, That's true. So that or tricky like a leprechaun or aggressive like a lion in contrast to, uh, you know, a lamb. Yeah. We do not mean to personify these properties of social systems by implying malicious intent. But then you may agree that it becomes morally objectionable for the planner to treat a wicked problem as though it were a tame one or to tame a wicked problem uh, prematurely or to refuse to recognize the inherent wickedness of social problems. And so that right there, that last bit is what I think gets to the heart of what maybe the connection is today is the refusal to recognize what this is right mm-hmm. uh, for what it is. And that brings us back to that political analogy of everything that's going on right now. Now, whatever candidate you support or whatever candidate you don't support, all of them are up there. That's the inherent nature of the political system, right? It, when you're running for office, you pretend like you have all the answers. Yeah. Uh, and, all of them are, are are basically running on a platform where they're like, oh, that problem, I have the answer to that. Yeah. That problem, I have the answer to that. Vote for me. I'm anti-Hydra. Elect me. Yeah. And I have, uh, <laughs> don't worry, I have a plan. I'm going to bring some very classy people to exterminate that Hydra. And it's, it's worse than that, right? Like, uh, you can't, oh, man, how refreshing would it be to have a candidate come up and just be like, well, look, like the problems that we're facing are so chaotic and so complex that we as human beings are just not equipped to be able to solve all of them. Uh, well, there's your problem. That doesn't sound like a politician. Exactly. That doesn't sound like somebody it's that like, gets elected. It's like some kind of philosopher or something, yeah. and we just shove that off in a corner and mm-hmm. say, well, that's that's not authoritative enough for what we need. Yeah. Actual contemplation of the, the wicked problems either comes after you're elected mm-hmm. or it falls to the people who are charged with fixing things by the elected individual. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, that's absolutely mm-hmm. true. Uh, and the very idea that you can't formulate a definition of what a wicked problem is is actually part of what uh, Riddle and Weber came up with as their ten characteristics. So the bulk of their article was def- uh, these characteristics that they they lay down and they basically say, uh, look, these are not criteria tests to determine what the wickedness is, but they're insights to help you to decide if the problem you're facing is wicked. So let's go through these briefly. And I'll note, uh, for those of you out there counting, there's actually 11 here in our list. And that's because uh, Hor- uh, Riddle and Weber, I keep wanting to call him Horst because that's his first name. Mm-hmm. Riddle and Weber uh, came up with 10. But then over the years, as people have written more about this and applied it to various things, they've come up with their own. And so they're basically the same, but I tried to sort of merge them together here for, for the purpose of the podcast. So I'll start with the first one, which is that wicked problems have no definitive formulation. They are all different, and they can't contribute to solving one another in any complete way. You can't write a well-defined statement of these problems. And this is a direct quote from the article by Riddle and Weber. The process of formulating the problem and of conceiving a solution are identical, since every specification of the problem is a specification of the direction in which a treatment is considered. Yeah, I think one example that comes to mind here is is uh, the war on drugs, right? Mm-hmm. Like drug epidemic is a problem, and then it it falls to well, then how do you define the problem, and then yeah. go after it? If you right. end up approaching it from a purely uh, you know law enforcement, right? Uh, when you brand it as a war, yeah, right, then you have chosen the direction. And, uh, yeah, and then it's easy for us to look back now, uh, look back at the eighties now and go, Oh, why did we brand it as a war on drugs? Mm -hmm. Right. But at the time it seemed like a solution to a problem to them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hindsight's 2020 on that, but Mm -hmm. then, but then once you've employed that strategy, you, you have changed the problems we'll discuss. Uh, so number two, wicked problems involve many stakeholders, all of whom have different ideas about what the problem is and what its causes are. This again, Mm -hmm. think of any, any portion of the world where there's a lot of conflict, like I, my mind instantly goes to uh, uh, at least a couple of different corners of the Middle East. I think yeah. of uh, uh, Israel and Palestine. I think of the, right. the current situation in Syria. You have different stakeholders that are involved uh, at different levels who who want different things out of this, but they want them in the name of solving the amorphous problem here. Totally. And at the micro level, I think we're all familiar with, you know, being in a kind of work situation or involved in any organization. Maybe it's not work. Maybe it's your, I don't know, your, uh, your housing uh, organization that governs mm-hmm. the the apartment complex you you're in, but you have all these different stakeholders. Everybody's got their own subjective position on these things. Right. And they all have different goals too. Um, so that ultimately, even just recognizing that goes a long way yeah. towards uh, making things a little bit better. All right, this is number three. It might be impossible to measure any kind of success with a wicked problem given their interconnectedness. The search for solutions will never stop. And this is a very Hydra yes. uh, uh, portion of the argument here. Because, yeah, any anytime you, you actually try and solve a complex problem, yeah, to what extent is your solution creating new problems? Yeah. Um, and then not addressing other areas that are all a part of the same issue. So, for instance, poverty. If you were mm-hmm. just... If you're just trying to solve the problem, the wicked problem of poverty by looking at jobs. Yeah. Like that's, that's, that's going to help some people. Sure. But is it going to help everyone? Is it going to erase poverty? No. Okay. The fourth one. There are no true or false solutions to wicked problems, only good or bad. Subje- it's all subjective, right? Yeah. 
um, and everyone's judgments will differ, and the solutions can only be described as in that good-bad paradigm, or, and this is from uh, the Riddle and Weber thing, but what's probably better to describe it as is better or worse, right? Okay. Things got better or things got worse, not they're good now, they're bad now. Yeah, like I, I think back to the war on drugs. Like you can imagine mm-hmm. someone saying, hey, uh, we applied this solution to the wicked problem, and then someone says, well, you put a lot of... These people had drugs and they're in prison now. They're off the streets. That's good. Right. And then someone might say, well, it also means that our prison population is extremely overloaded with these low level offenders. That's bad. And they say that's bad. Right. And the two things are like, it's like a a scale. It's like this like situation where you've got all these different scales that are attached to one another. And anytime you move one little thing, uh, everything shifts a little bit. Yeah. It's like seating on an airplane. It's like, all right, they moved their chair back. That's bad. I moved mine back. That's good. But now the person behind me is uncomfortable. And now, oh, the person beside me, it, it and it gets everything gets out of whack and everybody's yeah. miserable and there's nothing you can do about it. The domino effect of misery. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Number five, there's no template to follow when tackling a wicked problem. There's no way to determine right away if a if if a solution is working. So. Yeah, yeah, this gets into just the, the the problem of this is where we come back to the example you mentioned earlier, where they mentioned rapid prototyping, yeah. which I guess would work in cer- with certain types of wicked problems, but certainly larger uh, issues out there. Like, how do you rapid prototype uh, towards you know dealing with crime or dealing with poverty or dealing yeah. with hunger or or uh, or, or or any number of uh, wicked problems that pop up. It's especially on that scale. It's especially difficult. Uh, We'll talk a little bit more about, I think what they meant by rapid prototyping, but it's essentially uh, the gist is that like, rather than come up with one solution to approach a problem with Mm -hmm. and then see if that works. And then if it doesn't, then come up with another solution and keep trying them over and over again. They, they recommend coming up with multiple solutions and trying them all at once. Okay. Uh, But you know, there's problems with that too. So n- not rapid in succession, but just yeah, I believe that more they, like scatter shot. Exactly, yeah, it's the shotgun, okay. the shotgun the prototype boomstick okay. method, boomstick prototyping. I like that. <laughs> okay, uh, the, number six is there's always more than one explanation for a wicked problem, ah. and you can see that inherent in the examples that we've just mentioned as well. Yeah. Number seven, every wicked problem is a symptom of another wicked problem, and there's no single root cause. Yeah, so, so back to the interconnectedness yeah. and the hydra nature of it, right? Uh, and this one, this one, I think, is one of the most important uh, of their their ten characteristics here, specifically for us here at Stuff to Blow Your Mind. They say there's no way to scientifically test wicked problem strategies because they're all human inventions. They are outside of nature, right? So when we're thinking about all these problems. Like, it, it, let's go back to the Hydra, right? Like, the Hydra is a natural being that we are learning to understand by looking at through the You're talking about the, the biological The creature. biological yes. Hydra, mm-hmm. yeah, right? And we now understand how its mouth opens because we looked very closely at it with a, a light microscope, yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, but poverty is a human invention. Uh, and so, so uh, how do we look at that with a microscope? Yeah, I mean, the mythological Hydra is a human creation. Exactly. It changes every time you tell it. Exactly, um, yeah. Yeah, you can't, so many of these problems, you can't just apply physics and mm-hmm. see. You can't just apply, look at it from a, a fluid dynamics standpoint and try and figure it out. Maybe that can be helpful in some cases in figuring out a part of the problem. Yeah. If it's applicable, but, but probably not. 
Number nine, solutions to wicked problems are usually one-shot efforts that minimize trial and error efforts. Every implemented solution has consequences that cannot be undone. And this is where we get to mm-hmm. um, the, the fact that every time you try and solve the wicked problem, you change the problem. Right. And now you have a slightly different problem to have to deal with. Um, yeah, it's not like a mathematical equation where you like you figure out what X is, right? Like every time in, in these situations, if you figure out what X is, then like it changes what the definition of all the other numbers are yeah. in the original equation. It's kind of like this, this Rubik's Cube that is uh, on the table mm-hmm. in the podcast chamber we're recording right now. It's like if... I try, I'm trying to solve this thing, but every time I move it, I cannot move it back yeah. to where it was. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm just lost every time because each time I try to solve it, it is a new problem that I, I never get a second shot at solving the same problem. The Rubik's Cube is a great metaphor for wicked problems. That would be interesting. Except, Although it's except solvable. it can be solved. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Maybe uh, the lament configuration. Yeah, is a there better we go. Example. <laughs> Uh, okay. Every wicked problem is unique. This is number 10. There is no precedent. So what this means is essentially that you can't look back to any previous wicked problem that you've tried to make better as like a template mm-hmm. to say, okay, well, let's try the same thing that we tried with that here and see if it works because they're so totally unique that there's no, uh, there's no model to work from. And number 11, this is an interesting one. Designers attempting to address a wicked problem must be fully responsible for their actions. Yeah. So this one, um, I don't know that I had trouble with it as much as just that, like, you know, it's essentially a mission statement by the the authors here saying, like, mm-hmm. OK, so if you're going to approach this from a design policy standpoint, you have to own it. Yeah. And certainly, I mean, this seems like it. It is, or at least certainly should be, just part of the, uh, you know, any a political attempt yeah. or military attempt or what have you to, to tackle any kind of, uh, socioeconomic wicked problem is that, yeah, anything you do, you should be held accountable. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. as we often see that accountability <laughs> doesn't always, um, spread to everyone in these but scenarios. It, it's also important to note here, like, we can say, though, that not all hard-to-solve problems are wicked, only right. those that have an indeterminate scope and scale. So let's go back to the Rubik's Cube, right? Mm-hmm. That's a hard-to-solve problem, but it it's not wicked. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, you have a clear objective, too. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you solve this thing? Well, you get, I'll know it's solved when I have all the same colors on the same side. Exactly. So, like, wicked problems, you don't know at what point do you know it's solved. And there's also no instant feedback because the effects of trying to 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 uh, implement changes, say, you know, in in society, um, you're not going to get instant uh, feedback. You're going to get feedback rolling in in waves over years, decades to come. Like like we were just mentioning with the war on drugs. Yeah, it's a lot easier for us now. Uh, you know, 30 plus years later to say, oh, that seems like a silly approach or at least the branding approach to it. I don't want to criticize the methodology necessarily. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will discuss macro wicked problems, wicked problems in science and micro wicked problems. All right, we're back. So we've been talking about wicked problems and how they, it's a framework that we can sort of apply almost to anything, right? Like, as I was saying before, I had a friend who was like, well, you could talk about the human body as being a wicked problem. Mm-hmm. But um, let's take a look at sort of 
the definition that it was originally assigned for and what I'm calling for the purposes of this episode macro wicked problems, which are the the things the best example I can think of to tie this to is the current political campaign. Right. So. Yeah. Uh, and maybe you're not American, but you're probably familiar with all the zaniness that's going on in our political process right now. Or maybe wherever you're from, you, I, I can't imagine that politics are all that much different. Uh, it's the same friend who mentioned the human body thing had recently traveled to Ghana. And he was mm-hmm. like, yeah, you know, over there, uh, there was an election cycle in process while I was visiting there. And it was the same as it is here. It's just on a different level. Yeah. So what we're talking about here are, are the stances of where these, you know, these various politicians uh, think that they have the one single answer to solve a problem that society is basically, you know, arguing over. Right. The budget and economy, civil rights, uh, rights of corporations, uh, crime, drugs. We've mentioned those already. Education, how we use energy and oil, the environment, uh, foreign policy, free trade. How we reform our government, that one alone, wow, what a tangled mess that would be. Yeah, I mean, uh, did you mention climate change in that list? Climate change yeah, is at the end here, okay. yeah. That's uh, a big one, because, uh, I mean, that one fits all the the, the definitions yeah. that you're talking about. Yeah. Multiple stakeholders, yeah, I mean, that one, ha- that one fits most of the criteria we've been discussing, especially multiple stakeholders, different views on what, uh, what success means and what the root cause is and what the problem is to begin with. Mm-hmm. Gun control, same thing, yeah. right? It's such a complex issue. It's not just, you know, it, it's always interesting to try to bring it down to a personal level. But, you know, like I have I have friends who own guns and love their guns and are very, uh, very much want to, to keep their guns and are against gun control. Uh, and it's not it, it, for them. It's it's not like a connected to crime at all. Right. They mm-hmm. don't see that. But then there's the wicked problem of the connections between gun control and crime and drugs and education. You see, you see how they they all kind of span together. Oh yeah, I mean, on the gun control issue, we see it time and time again. It, like the, the issue comes up, and you know, one side says, "Oh, well, it's it's not a it's not a gun issue; it's a mental health issue." Other sure, side says, right. "Well, if you take all the the guns away, you're still not uh, people are still going to kill each other." I mean, it, it goes back and forth with yeah. people. Uh, People are arguing, and the, the one thing that's becoming clear is that we don't even have a, a, a full grasp. Like the problem itself is, am, is amorphous and and just and shapeless. And all that these different voices are doing it, are all they're doing is trying to give shape to the problem. Yeah, exactly. When you can't. Yeah. Uh, so a couple of really quick other ones, right? That you're going to be hearing about, or, or you're probably currently hearing about: homeland security, immigration. That's a big one. Jobs, social security, tax reform, technology. Just mm-hmm. Just like this kept coming back to me because we work in the digital media industry and it changes so quickly that it's interesting to see how uh, both policymakers and business people try to adapt with it. And it's 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 impossible to sort of predict the wave of how it's going to progress. Right. Um, And then there's, of course, the good old war and poverty ones. So, yeah, these are all huge issues that affect all of us. And I think like based on the definition that we set up for you before the break, you can see how these are all wicked problems. All right. We've already discussed like, the, the problem of trying to apply science to wicked problems, that it's not uh, an A plus B uh, equals C scenario. It's right. not like saying, oh, how do we get people to the moon? That's a hard problem yeah. to solve. We solved it, but though, we because we knew what the problem was. 
and uh, we knew what the destination was and we knew how to, to know that we had succeeded. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And so the this is actually the impetus for us talking about wicked problems here today is there was a great article earlier in the week that came out from the Bangor Daily News. And it was written by a woman named Linda Silka, and she is a social and community psychologist at the University of Maine. And basically, she was addressing how Maine as a state is coming together and trying to approach their wicked problems in a different way. Uh, using science, basically. And she says, and this is, this is the key here. This is why I thought this really connected well to our show. She argues, look, there's this popular culture image of science where there's a lab coded researcher and they prove a brilliant idea and, uh, then, uh, you know, uh, they've solved it, right? They've solved uh, a problem or they've given humanity more knowledge about a thing. The Hydra, right? We, we, when we discussed, uh, the, the actual Hydra and its anatomy in the previous episode, the way that we talked about it, I had that in my head. I'm, I'm imagining that some of our listeners did too of people in lab coats looking at Hydras under microscopes and going, aha, we solved it, right? Yeah. And, and you know, we encounter this occasionally with, with, uh, listeners and readers for stuff to blow your mind because, there's that vision, but, but science also involves getting it wrong. Oh, yeah. Getting it wrong a lot. Like that's how we help define what we know and what direction the research is going by making mistakes. Mistakes that you, you can, you, you, you can't necessarily make in tackling uh, a wicked problem. Yeah. I mean, so like, uh, for some of the things that we work on here at How Stuff Works, this comes up again and again where, uh, we're tasked with, uh, answering how X works, right? Mm-hmm. And there isn't always an answer. It, the, uh, so very often, especially like when, uh, Joe and I are writing for our, our general science video show, Brain Stuff, the answer is, well, science doesn't know yet, but here's what we do know, right? right. And there, I can't tell you how many times we've seen answers in the comments on social media or YouTube or something where people are like, well, why did you even bother to make this? <laughs> uh, because science doesn't have the answer. And, and I think, well, the, the, the importance is like, well, when we cover what we do know, then we're able to sort of approach it differently, right? Yeah. I mean, it kind of gets down into that area too of this is something science doesn't know, but here are some theories as to how it might work that's just that's just how we feel our way out that's yeah how exactly out that's what's the potential how we answer move is. forward yeah. um so silka's argument is that this lab coded research myth is becoming outdated and that we need to make efforts to ensure that research can help solve the societal challenges we have like wicked problems, like all the things that we were just defining. But she's looking at it very much from a Maine perspective because she's working at the University of Maine. So she says in order to solve these, science needs to be approached in a more complex way. Uh, there needs to be interaction between scientists, decision makers, and citizens. And you may have heard about this discussed elsewhere. Some people label it as citizen science. I know uh, a couple years ago I went to South by Southwest and that was like the big term that was being thrown around. A lot of people were creating apps that allowed everybody to be a citizen scientist and to go out and gather data with their their phones by like taking pictures and then it would upload to a particular scientist's laboratory. Yeah, various efforts to say everybody like take everybody take pictures of whale sharks that you encounter and yeah. listen to a database. Everyone uses a screensaver that uh, enables SETI to search for intelligent life. Yeah, uh, the library that I used to work at was part of the the world community grid that mm-hmm. uh, contributed basically whenever the computers were 
uh, in sleep mode. They were contributing their processing power toward solving scientific problems. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so her argument is essentially that all of us need to know about the issues and all of us need to be involved because we all have important roles to play. And she says, let's move away from what is called the loading dock approach to science. And the, the metaphor for that loading dock approach to science goes like this. You got a scientist and they're basically acting like a factory that produces widgets, right? And they're not producing widgets for any particular person. Then they just put those widgets on the loading dock and they wait for somebody to come along and go, oh, that's something I have a use for and take it away, right? Um, and I see this, you know, uh, having worked in academia previously, of course, like the way that that system is set up, uh, it's not always necessarily working in conjunction to solve a problem. More often, it's kind of like uh, I need to get published so that yeah, I can get publish tenure, or die. Right. Yeah. Uh, so instead of the loading dock procedure, she says we should create a product that is useful to people who actually need it. So science should try to uh, work together to figure out the poor and the hungry issues that we've been talking about. Or something that doesn't require people to necessarily have full access to the set of complications that are involved in scientific research. Essentially, I think what they mean by that is like, you don't have to have a PhD, mm-hmm. right? Um, so we already have really scarce science resources, as we know from all the stuff that we cover for the show and for the other stuff that we work on here. How do we focus our solutions for the right kind of stakeholders? Well, in Maine, she says researchers are trying to tackle this problem differently and specifically so that the way that they address sustainability. So uh, they're bringing together shellfish harvesters with their policymakers and biologists and economists to all discuss the issues surrounding what I would assume is, you know, uh, farming uh, shellfish for, for food industry. Uh, another example she gave was solving the decline in Maine's blueberry crops, which they see as also being connected to the collapse of their pollinator bee population. Now, I, I don't know how many times in different forms uh, uh, or shows here at How Stuff Works we've talked about colony collapse disorder. It's something that's on a lot of people's radar. But it, this is an interesting way to approach it, that it's not just, okay, that's a science issue we need to solve, but also, hey, we've got these blueberries over here that are important to our economy. What does that mean for this? You know, uh, and then ultimately her, she says, there's also scientists who are going to argue against this. So be prepared for a backlash. And there's lots of scientists who will claim that anyone who doesn't have formal training, they won't do any good research, right? They're not going to be capable of uh, contributing to the discipline. It's what uh, in academia is often referred to as the siloing effect, right? Where uh, everybody puts themselves in little silos and they sort of have their, their beefdoms that they want to fight over control over. Well, in Maine, this is exactly how the uh, the Arrowhead facility opened up that rift into the Todash darkness. Exactly. You know? It's, you know what, like the mist would not have happened if we just approached things as a wicked problem. I know. All those people in that grocery store, man. Yeah. It was a tough time. You know what? That's a good uh, segue for us to bring it down. We're, we've been <laughs> up. We've been up in the outer space of Todash darkness, talking about the macro version of this, talking about the science version of it. Let's bring it down to the micro level, right? Uh, we've all worked for organizations, presumably, right? In, in our current society, that's how we can afford the devices that we have to listen to podcasts on. Yeah, even if you uh, don't have to uh, work for 
an organization, you're probably having to come in contact with organizations. You know, yeah, if exactly. you're that lone hitman, you still have to work for the mafia. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. So uh, what we found when we were looking at the wicked problem thing is, yeah, uh, it's being applied in the science aspect up in Maine. But by and large, almost all the research that was showing up for me was management stuff or business review type magazines. And the big one that I looked to. Uh, was a piece by John Camillus that was in the Harvard Business Review in 2008. Uh, and basically, uh, he studied strategic planning at 22 different companies. Then he looked in depth at seven of them and he, he finally zoned in specifically on DuPont Pharmaceuticals, which has come up on the show before. I, I don't, I can't remember off the top of my head. Was it Alexander Shulgin who worked for DuPont? It was somebody Ooh, like that. If it wasn't, yeah, I think it was Shulgin. It might have been Shulgin. Um, he wasn't Lily. No, right. So he finally, he zoned in on DuPont to kind of see how that company drew up its strategies to deal with uncertainty. And he used all of these to come up with, uh, ways to talk about taming problems within the workplace, be, the ones that can't be solved, the wicked problems. So yeah, Camillus basically, uh, makes the same argument that the, the, those guys made back in the early seventies, but, uh, in terms of companies, right? So he says companies are faced with constant wicked problems in their increasingly complex envi- environment. So you're looking at, uh, changing the way that we look at strategic planning processes, which are very traditional. They don't address wicked problems in any way. So, uh, in fact, the actual processes that are used to approach the problems may insel- it may in fact be wicked problems themselves. Right. Every time you, yeah, every time you change the structure of the business, potentially a new wicked problem arises. Yeah. I'm thinking of like every time like a company goes through a, a reorganization, yeah. right? Or a restructuring. Or pivots. Or, yes. Yeah, the pivoting, one. which mm-hmm. is something we hear about quite often. Um, yeah. Uh, or, uh, you know, big surprise, this piece was written eight years ago, and it doesn't seem like policymakers and companies have really acknowledged it yet. I, you know, I've, I've worked, uh, here for three years. I've worked in, uh, the public sector, in academia, and in libraries. I used to work for a publishing company before this, and then long ago, I was a graphic designer working in a sort of a direct marketing world. And I didn't see at any of those businesses a sort of recognition recognition of the like organizational principle of the wicked problem. Um, and I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they're out there. I'd love to hear it. If some of you out there listening work for a company that thinks about uh, running the company in such a way, let us know, because it sounds like it would be, I don't know, sort of heavenly place to work at. Um, <laughs> well, you know, one of the issues is that I feel like a lot of workplaces and I'm and I'm speaking you know, uh, on, on, I'm speaking to to my history with with various employers over the years. Yeah, is that um, it's one thing to to have a meeting about a problem, to try and define that problem, and in a way that's that's good. Yeah, like that's how you should approach wicked problems: is to not just throw out solutions willy nilly and see what happens. You should discuss. You should try and get figure out what are some of the root issues here. What are the different viewpoints? But a lot of times in a corporate environment. Like that's all that gets done. Like mm-hmm. you have those meetings, the results are are, are typed up, and the yeah. wicked problem um, summary winds up on somebody's desk. Maybe there are some recommended solutions. Maybe some of those get implemented. Maybe the safer ones get implemented. But does does anything ultimately change? 
Maybe not. Yeah, that's actually interesting because Camillus, uh, you know, one of his recommendations is essentially uh, right at the top. He says, well, you got to involve your stakeholders and document everybody's opinions and then make sure that everybody's communicating about what those opinions are. And that's Mm -hmm. what you just described. But you're right. In a lot of situations, it just kind of stops there. Yeah. Um, Like there there isn't the action part that comes after it. Um, And he, he actually came up with his own five symptoms based off of what all these other people came up with. And they're fairly similar. Um, you know, we get the same thing with the, there's many stakeholders. They all have different values and different priorities. Of course you see that in the workplace, right? Like some managers of some departments have their own values and priorities while another manager and another tier above them and to the side of them has a different set of priorities. And it's not necessarily being communicated clearly. Yeah. Or in the worst situations, you're, you're one of those employees who finds yourself with two or more bosses. Oh yeah. Trying to figure out yeah. Well, who am I listening to? What, and what is the priority? And just like the, the larger macro problems, you know, they've got, uh, complex, tangled roots, their problem, uh, it's difficult to come to grips with, and every time you try to approach it, it changes. I'm thinking, like, like, I'm thinking of previous workplaces I've been at where, like, there's been a problem employee, right? And mm-hmm. it's just, like, a person that everybody knows is a problem, and you go, well, the simple solution is just fire that person. But, like, in certain atmospheres, you can't just do that, right? Because there's repercussions to that as well that subsequently tangle and lead to other problems, too. Yeah. Uh, I, I have unfortunately seen that in many workplaces. Um, again, they have no precedent. There's nothing to indicate what the right answer is, right? There's no, like, I, I love how we, we all think of HR, human resources, as being like, oh, well, they've got the answer, right? Like, there's a handbook. <laughs> they've got a school for that. So clearly, yeah. there's, there's got to be a way to approach this in a particular way that has the answer. But I don't necessarily know that that's true. Yeah, I mean, you get the sense that they have a they have a system. They may have a a, a guide. They may have a, a way to discuss a problem that arises. But ultimately, the the I mean, we've all heard of situations with uh, people we know where the the HR solution is not the best solution. Yeah, yeah. certainly, certainly, yeah. Um, and it's interesting too because like my wife has worked at all different kinds of companies as well too. I feel like between the two of us, over the last fifteen years, we've had like this very a broad spectrum of types of places to work at. And yet, like we see the same problems at all of them, you know? Yeah. I mean, in a way it comes down to what was the, the famous Reagan quote about government, uh, about go- government isn't the solution to the problems. Government is the problem. Oh yeah. Which yeah. It's, you know, I think going a bit too far, but it does tie in to the basic idea that the body that tries to fix a wicked problem, be it, you know, a large sweeping, uh, yeah. macro problem or a micro problem, the body that tries to fix something almost inevitably messes it up or messes yeah. it up for some people. Yeah. It's like, it's almost like you have to figure out like, okay, they're going to mess this up, but is the mess that's going to be left afterwards <laughs> better than the mess that we have? How, now? Yeah. What is my relationship to the mess <laughs> right. going to be? Right. Like I know, like, you know, I know it's, it's going to be messy, but can I live with the mess? So, uh, let's quickly go through Camillus's, uh, solutions, which are beyond just like what you described, which is the sort of, yeah, everybody sit around and talk about a thing. Mm-hmm. We'll write it down and we'll put it in a document somewhere and file it away. Um, does this sound familiar for anybody out there? Define what your corporate identity is, right? What's, yep. what are the company's values? What is it competent at? And what are its aspirations? I can't tell you how many places I've worked for that, uh, that those aren't clear to all the employees. And yet, like, it seems like something that should just be relatively simple, right? Uh, even like when we see like fictional versions of companies, I'm thinking of, like, I'm thinking of what's the evil company in Robocop? Uh, oh, um, uh, Omni. 
Yeah, yeah. Like, that's a perfect example. Like, the people who worked there seemed to pretty much have an idea of what its values were, what they were good at building killer robots, and uh, what its aspirations were, which was <laughs> basically take over the city of Detroit, right? But you find in a lot of situations that there's, there's like a vague uh, sort of anxiety-inducing uh, amorphousness to what the company you work for is doing, right? Yeah. I mean, meanwhile, you go to like an, your average kindergarten class, and uh, generally the, the rules are on the wall. You know? <laughs> right, so. exactly. That would be great if we had that like on the refrigerator or something at all different corporations. Just yeah. Like, like here's the, what it is. Yeah. Have the public. <laughs> and it's written in crayon. <laughs> <laughs> There's also, of course, like what Robert was uh, mentioning earlier, you got to take action on things. And this connects to what we were talking about with the rapid prototyping. So instead of thinking through every option that's available before choosing a single one, they recommend, well, Camillus does in particular, experimenting with multiple strategies that seem like they're feasible uh, and launch innovative pilot programs. And this is interesting to me uh, because this is something that actually at How Stuff Works we've heard a lot in the last, I'd say, two years maybe, which is don't be afraid to fail, right? And there's a – at first I had trouble struggling with that, and now I sort of see, oh, okay, so this is that approach that uh, – I don't know that rapid prototyping is the right term. Uh, the way I've often heard it uh, described is the whole uh, fail fail quickly and yeah. fail often, you know? Yeah. Um, which is – Try a bunch of different yeah, things, which out. is you know and sort of A/B fail, testing. That's okay. Right? Then we know not to do that one approach. Yeah, yeah. Like generally, A/B testing is is uh, is thought yeah. a great way to do this. You just roll it out for some people, and you show them A, you show them B, you figure out what works, and you go with that, and you do this, and you know, with, without having to uh, invest much more time and money. Yeah. In testing the product. And you bring it back to the macro level for a second here and you go, oh, wow, like there's no way that uh, governments can act this way, right? Because if they're just like, well, we'll just try 20 different things. And if 19 of them fail, at least we'll have found one thing that works. You, there's plenty of people out there who go, well, what about all my tax dollars that were just spent on the 19 things that didn't work, right? Yeah. So uh, there's an, an inherently a wicked problem there as well. Well, and a lot of them, a lot of it, a lot of businesses are maybe, maybe have a lot more in common with dictatorships yeah. as opposed to, uh, a democratic, uh, republic. So. You know, it's a little more, a little, little more complicated on, on the, the macro level. I think. Well, spinning off your dictatorship metaphor, mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting because dictators don't necessarily have this one particular communication orientation that Camillus recommends. And I like this. Uh, it, it, it really stems out of the basic uh, necessity of all kinds of human communication. And it is to adopt what's called a feed forward orientation. So, when you're trying to solve problems, don't just use feedback for communicating with your you know, organization about what the problems are and how to tame them. Because feedback relies solely on the past and what happened, while wicked problems all arise out of an unclear future, right? So remember that that un- indeterminable scope that they have. Um, so you really need to envision that that future that's that's unclear and try to envision what you'd like it to be. So this gets back to the aspirations of what, of who you're working for uh, and then communicate what that organization wants its future to look like to everybody involved in the organization. You know, it's interesting because some of these ideas uh, regarding the corporate environment, they have uh, spilled over into sort of family management uh, scenarios there, uh, for instance, in, in my family, yeah. um, my, me, my wife and my son, we try and have a weekly meeting Oh yeah. and at the weekly meeting, 
everybody uh, has to has to discuss what worked during the week, what didn't work during the week, what they would like to change in the coming week, oh, that's as smart. well as like what we would like to eat in the coming week, mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, but that approach is based on some of the principles that have been bouncing around uh, in the corporate world yeah. uh, for the past ten years or so. Yeah, that is an interesting approach. It, it, essentially, what we're talking about here is just open communication, yeah. which surprisingly, you know, for human beings, which like one of our greatest assets is our ability to communicate with one another, we're not so good at. At, at doing it in these kind of situations where we're tackling these real world big problems. Yeah, I mean, we did a workbook uh, for it where we had to. We even had to come up with our own, uh, essentially, our corporate identity for our yeah. family. Like, what are what's our motto? What are our values? I bet Bastion had a giraffe in there somewhere. Um, yeah, he was not. He was not super helpful in the crafting <laughs> of the uh, of, of this particular uh, yeah. document. Uh, but that sounds like good advice for for any you know uh, family unit. Yeah. You know? So, you know, who are we? What are, what are we trying exactly. to do here? Yeah, what's this little family experiment? This? You know, exactly. let's, let's get out of the, the, the moment to moment thing and just think a little, little broader. Yeah, I like that. That's cool. Well, it sounds like that you can take that and you can extrapolate it outwards and apply it on the work level. You can apply it on the science level and then you can apply it on the sort of macro scale level that we've been talking about. So that really gets at the gist of wicked problems. We weren't able to, I mean, you know, obviously it's much denser than what we talked about today. And I feel like this is maybe a little denser than most stuff to blow your mind episodes are. But, you know, we, we at least covered the surface of this is what they are. This is how they apply to the real world that we exist in and science. Yeah. And I have no doubt that we will refer back to wicked problems in the future yeah. as we tackle other uh, other topics, uh, be they, you know, ultimately scientific or, or more likely cultural. So uh, those of you out there listening, uh, let us know. I'm really curious. Uh, I'm always curious to see what our audience has to say about our episodes. But in this instance in particular, I'd like to see what you think about the theory of wicked problems, how it's applicable in your life or how you could see it being applicable maybe on a larger scale or those of you out there, we know a lot of people who listen to the show are graduate students or actual scientists working in laboratories, how it affects the work that you're doing. Yeah, indeed. And then how do you personally tackle wicked problems? How do you mm. think about them? Because there there are wicked problems that that exist, uh, you know, within a country. There are wicked problems that exist within a family. Uh, how do you dance around those and define them? So usual places to reach out to us and let us know your thoughts on these things. We've got Facebook. We're on Twitter. We are on Tumblr. Uh, we're even on Instagram now. Uh, we're going to start posting to that soon. And you can start seeing pictures of things that we're taking and of us and uh, probably images, I would assume, of the podcast episodes that we're distributing as well. Yeah, we'll blow the mind on there. I think currently there's just one picture of me with a third eye. And that's it. Oh, OK. Yeah. Well, that's a good place to start. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, how else could they reach out to us to discuss their wicked problems? Oh, just get in touch with us the old fashioned way. Email us at below the mind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 